at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, November 6th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for today's show to help you accomplish that very next step. And that's what this is all about. You're not going to take a, a leap, you're going to take a step, and then another step, and then another step. And that's what we're to help you accomplish. Okay. This is all about a journey. I'm on that journey as well. I learn new things every day. I, I, I digest new data points. I look at different perspectives. I try to balance out various perspectives as well. It's very easy in today's world to get caught up in an echo chamber of one particular point of view. You know, in social media, you know, that's where we get a lot of our information. It's easy to say. I'm only going to follow the people that support my narrative, support what I believe. But it's pretty clear that a diversity of thought goes a long way to being nimble and to finding the right lane forward. Because you're only stuck on one path, you are unable to adjust when the conditions of that path get materially worse. And that's what we're always trying to do on the show is to help you think about the various aspects of each sector, each asset class, the broader economy that are important to Consider. And it's your job as an investor, just like anything in life, to weigh both sides, differences of opinions, different data points, etc., and come to a reasonable conclusion. One that's based on those facts, not emotions, not a narrative, but the reality on the ground. Not the world that you hope it to be, but the world that is. So your contributions are vital to this show so I can help you understand what you are thinking about so I can bring to you my perspective developed over 20 plus years of investment experience. And to that point, we have an exciting new event coming up this week. It's this week and it's our Invest Talk Wealth webinar coming up this Thursday, November 9th. And it's so it's only three days away. It's called Profit Amidst Chaos, Strategic Investing in a Recession. So we're going to look at uh, the current market environment, previous recessions, uh, the secular backdrop that we're operating in today's world, as well as what type of 
sectors and asset classes work well leading up to a recession, during a recession, exiting a recession, etc. Okay? So be sure to register and tell your friends about it. Once again, it's uh, 3 p. It's 3 p.m. Pacific. It's Thursday afternoon. I don't know the exact time off the top of my head, but it is Thursday afternoon, so uh, Pacific time. So it might be later in the day for the, those of you on the East Coast. But you can register right now on investtalk.com. All right, now that now on to the job at hand. I'm going to talk about the market performance today. I'm going to run down some show topics right after we answer our first caller question now. Hey, this is John from Virginia. Just had a question about Petco, ticker W-O-O-F. It's trading dramatically lower than its one-year high. However, return on equity remains low, under 2%. In the last earnings call, the company stated they were continuing to focus on more high-end consumables. Is that really smart heading into a recession? Additionally, price for earnings is still relatively high at 28. What price point would you recommend uh, looking at this and it being an attractive price point? Thanks. Well, here's the issue with Petco. And this is a name that went IPO a few years back. Let me zoom out here. So 2021. And we all know that the pet industry, it's a very lucrative business. It's a, it's a fairly recession-proof business for the most part. Your dog or cat or whatever pet you might have doesn't know what's going on in the economy. They just want to be fed. They want their toys. And we treat our pets. I have, I have a dog. We treat our pets like family. And so it's, it's a good business to be in. So I've actually always looked at this name and said, okay, where can I buy this? Waiting for an indicator. Basically, it's been on the watch list. Saying, this is a good industry to be in. Are there data points that will line up that will get me excited about owning the underlying business? And that's what's really been elusive. Is it's been in a downtrend ever since. It went IPO in the high 20s. And now we're at $3.76. And the issue mainly is debt. It's another one of those examples. Debt is not something that is helpful in this environment, especially for the small cap names. And it has a billion dollar market cap, about a billion and a half in net debt on its balance sheet. And its times interest earned is only 1.37. That's too thin of a margin. I need that to be three or above. And so what you've seen is earnings just continue to slide. They were losing money in 2020. Uh, and in 2021, they made money when that, they went IPO. And that's what I was saying. Okay, their business is improving. Let's see how this evolves as time goes on. But I also know that you probably typically don't want to own uh, an IPO six months after, an I, uh, after that IPO because the lockout period ends, the insider starts selling shares, and then the price tends to decline. But eventually, if the quality of the business lines up, you would want to buy it. But once again, earnings went from $0.91 in 2022 to $0.69 last year. It's supposed to be $0.28 this year, down 60%. And and, and what, what clearly the management is trying to say is we want better margins, right? Their operating margins are only 2.8%, very, very low. 
And they were talking about putting in a lot of clinics within Petco's and kind of a higher higher value add service than just the retail business. And I thought that was a good idea. But clearly the execution just hasn't been there. And that's why it continues to be on the sideline because there's too much debt. The cash flow situation, while positive, is still pretty meager, especially considering its debt level. And so that's why I think you have to pass on it. And sometimes a narrative of the type of business you want to own just doesn't align with the data. And you have to listen to the data. You have to listen to, once again, what you what the reality of the situation is as opposed to what you want it to be. I would love to own a company like Petco that's operating effectively and, and has a great business. But nothing has ever told me that from the numbers. So that's why I continue to pass on it. It's always been on the watch list, but never wanted, ne- never fired on it. And I don't think you should either. All right, we're going into a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Talk Voice Bank. If you're listening via the live stream or on AM 1220 radio in Silicon, in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART. It's happening in just three days. This Thursday, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, the newest Invest Talk Wealth Webinar Profit Amidst Chaos Strategic Investing in a Recession. The Wealth Webinar will be presented online and free of charge, but you have to register in advance to reserve your spot. Which sectors tend to soar and which plummet during economic downturns? With the right strategies, you can safeguard your investments and also seize unique opportunities. So join Invest Talk hosts Justin Klein and Luke Guerrero of KPP Financial as they take you through the maze of mysteries involved with investing in times of recession. Tell your friends about the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar. It's happening live, online, and free Thursday, November 9th. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover over the next 40 minutes, but time permitting, I'm going to hit on our main story, which is housing market affordability has plunged to the lowest levels since 1985. And the housing market is tough for prospective home buyers due to high mortgage rates and a supply crunch. So I'll talk about low supply and high demand for housing, uh, affordable housing solutions, and approaching a mortgage loan in this environment, and a sensible home buyer's plan if you are in the market. So we're going to look at all of that. Also, we're going to touch on a an interesting... What I was interesting, a unique moment in market history that happened last week. And let me give you a hint. It surrounds the Fed and the Treasury. Okay, so we're going to look at that. Also, yield curve control in Japan 
It's been going on for a long time, and it's actually it has helped the corporate bond market or just the dollar-denominated bond market in general due to what is called the carry trade. So I'll talk a little bit about that and why if Japan unwinds, that could mean interesting things for uh, the rest of uh, asset markets, dollar-denominated asset markets. And then lastly, geopolitical concerns and how that is likely to feed into interest rates as well. All right, that's what's on the docket for me. I also have perspective looking at the phenomenon of unrealized security losses at the big banks. So we're going to look at that. But let's take a look at the market performance today. Definitely small caps lag down 1.23% after having a huge rally last week. Uh, small caps, or sorry, large caps were roughly flat on the day, 0.03% for uh, the large cap market. If you look at, let's see. Yeah, we basically raised most of the outperformance in small caps from Friday. Almost, not completely. It was a big outperformance on Friday. So it was kind of a more of a snapback. A lot of that had to do with the fact that the 10-year treasury was up 10 basis points. So that certainly weighed on those duration assets. Uh, so the market liked the fact that the bond markets rallied last week and the week before, frankly. But we had a little step back today. We'll see if that's more of a reversion to this new downtrend mean, uh, or it is a resurgence back to maybe a 5% rate on the 10-year. The dollar was a little stronger. That was more of an indicator to me that this change, this trend change on Friday, the jobs report, is reality. Uh, Because... Obviously, there's a lot of supply coming on into the bond market, and that's generally pushing rates higher. But ultimately, the signal what the Fed is going to do is is mainly going to manifest in the currency markets. And while the dollar is up today, it was very minor, remains well below the uh, well below the the lows from Thursday before that plunge lower in the dollar on Friday. So that was a, a pretty good tell. Uh, let's take a look. The credit spread markets, that was pretty much flat. So uh, you really had credit spreads tighten back last week. Really on this increasing likelihood that the Fed is on pause and the next move will be a rate cut. Now, this was, I don't want to say the first job data print that signaled the end of this expansionary cycle, but it was the most obvious one because I I do think there were some telltale signs of the past couple earnings reports, sorry, jobs reports that were hinting at labor softness. This is the most clear cut one that the Fed can kind of uh, hang their hat on and say we're done because of the labor market, which is certainly tight historically, but much looser than it was uh, just a handful of months ago. All right, now as we go to a break, let me remind you to check out our new Invest.Classroom series, and it is free, and it's titled Investment Strategies for Short-Selling Stocks. It's episode 12, and you can find that over on our YouTube channel to search Classroom. And now the phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART.
The stock market is volatile. It's constantly changing. So how are you positioned? Is your portfolio properly balanced or are you taking unnecessary risks? You can get guidance anytime for free if you go to investtalk.com and take the brief Riskalyze quiz. Eight eight nine nine chart eight eight nine nine two four two seven eight. Now my main focus point looks in the story behind this headline: Housing market affordability has plunged to the lowest levels since nineteen eighty five, and we currently have a situation where we have low supply and high demand, relatively high demand within the housing market, although that has waned, and a lot of people are trying to figure out how they should approach a mortgage loan in this market with 8% rates and have a home buyer's plan that makes sense. And home buyers are facing the most unaffordable housing market since the 1980s. Mortgage rates are now at a 23 year high and monthly principal and interest payments on a medium priced home in October hit a record high, putting it the least affordable since 1984. So typical P Payment and interest are up 94% over the last two years, rising $1,240 to about $2,500. And the typical household needs about 41% of their income to pay for a mortgage. The average over the last couple of decades, or the last 35 years, excuse me, has been 25%. So from 25% to 41%. Now, this last time it was this unaffordable was during the Volcker era, 1984. Mortgage rates were averaging 14%. So you think 8% is high? 14% is very high. And this is when there was high demand. So what was keeping prices high then was the fact that boomers were hitting their prime buying years. And they were making more money. And they want to start a family. And so they bit the bullet and they bought. And obviously for the vast majority of them, that was one of the best best things they ever did from an economic perspective. Because a lot of those homes were, I know here in Southern California, were, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Now they're some of them worth a million plus. Now they get back in line with longer-term averages, a few things could happen. You could have the 30-year mortgage rate fall by 4.4%. So that puts you back down around 3.6%. Probably not going to happen, right? The mean household income has to rise 62%. I guess with a tight enough labor market over a long enough time period, that could happen. Or home prices could fall 38%. Now, something similar that was something similar to right 08. Now, what I think actually is going to happen is a little bit of all three. I think rates are going to come down. I think inflation, due to inflation and a relatively tight labor market due to demographics, income is going to, t- going to continue to rise at a pretty healthy clip. Maybe not 62% in total over the next decade, but I think we could get close to that. Right, if you have incomes going up four or five percent a year for a decade, you compound that. That's probably higher than sixty-two percent. 
And then home prices could obviously fall if you get a lull in demand caused by near-term a near-term recession, unemployment rate going up, maybe parts of the Airbnb market eventually coming for sale. Now, that is one thing I do want to to hit on quickly is a lot of people are calling uh, for an Airbnb bust that's going to break the housing market. Remember, typically those Airbnb renters are going to turn into long-term renters, right? So if they're not getting enough money to pay for that home in the Airbnb market, vacation rental market, they will stick with maybe a less lucrative but more consistent long-term renter. And I think that's probably where most of them will go. So I, don't, I think that's going to correct more in the in the rental market, but not necessarily the bring on a ton of new supply for the most part. Now, prices are showing signs of slowing. So that's certainly true. The weakest monthly gains since January last month in September. And home prices cooled in 49 out of 50 of the 50 largest markets. Prices fell the most in Austin and New Orleans, 0.31% in Austin and 0.14% in New Orleans. That's month over month. The least affordable markets, Los Angeles, San Diego, and San Jose. So still California overall. Now, one thing you have to remember with California is our property tax is much lower than the rest of the country as a percentage-wise. Typically, from I would say, I wouldn't say much. It is certainly lower than most of the the rest of the country. Uh, so understand that it's one reason why uh, Cal- California stays relatively elevated. But it's pretty clear that this is going to be a long process to get affordability back to long-term averages. It's going to be need multiple factors that come along to to correct this, and it's going to be a multi-year uh, phase, not this eighteen-month crash like in 08. Because there's not a lot of forced sellers. Name a forced seller out there. I don't see very many of them. And if they are forced so far, they're being forced to sell in a fairly strong market. So while affordability is bad, that does not mean we have to crash anytime soon. All right. On the next Invest Talk, we're looking at the story, story set by this headline. A made in USA revival has sparked a building boom and a 506% rally in value. Construction companies are benefiting as manufacturing returns to the U.S. That story tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the Internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use. 
and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com, HackerOne.com. It's happening in just three days. This Thursday, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. The newest Invest Talk Wealth Webinar Profit Amidst Chaos Strategic Investing in a Recession. The Wealth Webinar will be presented online and free of charge. Go to investtalk.com and register now. Hi, Justin and Stephen Luke. Uh, it's Alex here from the UK. I have a question. I think I've made the classic mistake of just having too many names in my portfolio. So I'm really trying to narrow things down. I'm down to about 35 um, stocks that I own and hopefully going to reduce that down to about 30. One of the stocks I was looking at um, and sort of reviewing was NiSource, which is NI. It's a 10 billion-ish market cap um, utility company, does gas and electric distribution um, in the US. Um, Looking at it, the earnings were rising consistently. It pays a reasonable dividend. It had good guidance going forwards. However, listening to you guys, and particularly with um, the change in interest rates, I'm concerned that the debt level is very high. So it looks like it's over $9 billion in long-term debt. The free cash flow is negative and has been turning more negative over the last number of years. Um, I'm about 8% down on the stock, and I just wanted your advice on is this a good idea to get rid of it? And how and what is the best way to do that? Do you wait for a short-term bounce? How, how do you determine a level to get rid of it or just sell it as is? Thank you very much. And I look forward to the answer on the program. All right. Looking at NISource, and this is a utility. And it mainly serves customers in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Kentucky, Maryland, and Massachusetts. It's about $10 billion market cap, and you're right, the, the business has, or at least the cash situation has deteriorated. And a lot of that is because, it looks like, they're replacing a lot of their coal-fired plants with natural gas and renewable energy sources. So it's been one of those situations where there's a lot of CapEx going out. Now, it's a regulated utility, so typically how these re regulated utilities work is that there's an agreement with the local governments that over time, customers will, will shoulder the CapEx costs here. And that's why cash flow operations continues to go up to all-time high, $1.9 billion where free cash flow continues to remain negative. And it's been pretty negative since about 2016. And they've been adding debt because of it, et cetera. And obviously that's going to weigh on their overall profitability. Now, typically how this works is they have agreements as well with the local governments of their profitability levels, right? What their return equity can be. 
And that's why return equity and return assets tend to be relatively stable for these type of names. So it's kind of a complex beast here because it's across multiple jurisdictions and they're shifting their uh, their source of, of energy and they're adding more debt because of it. Now, it's utility and all utilities have been weak. So it's down, but the question is, is it down more than the other utility sector? The answer is over the last year, pretty much no. It's about in line. Now it was weaker up until late uh, mid-October. And now it's starting to drastically outperform the utility space. Pretty markedly, actually, over the past call it two, three weeks. Now I'm not sure there's news around it or whatever, but I think the point here is if you don't own much utilities, this is not a bad one to own. Especially with this recent outperformance, that trend is starting to shift. So I like that. So it wouldn't be probably first on my chopping block unless I owned a bunch of other utilities and I didn't want that exposure and I want to trim into strength, which you've you've seen uh, lately with the utility sector and uh, NISource in general. So I think it's fine. I like the jurisdictions. A lot of people are moving there. I think they're going to benefit from reshoring manufacturing, right? This is the Rust Belt that I believe is going to be rebuilt over the next decade or two due to really government incentives and, and, and uh, corporate initiatives that are reshoring supply chains. So I, I really don't have a problem with this particular utility. So I wouldn't be in a rush to sell it, uh, but a lot depends on the rest of your portfolio. And, and you talked about how you have too many names. That's very common. So finding ways to trim that down uh, is, is good, <clears throat> but this necessarily wouldn't be the first one cut on my book, unless obviously you had a, a, a lot better ones than this. All right. Now, perspective looks at bank losses, unrealized losses. Okay. And we're, we're looking back or really over the last year, maybe call it 18 months since interest rates rose and unrealized losses occurring on bank balance sheets. Uh, it becomes more, it's becoming more common. Unrealized simply means that you bought something and you've lost money on it near term, but it's a, on paper. You haven't taken that loss. It hasn't become a realized loss. And there are a lot of entities, not just banks, individuals as well, that have losses in their bond portfolio. It's really unavoidable for the most part, unless you're owning very short-dated securities. So to have loss in the bond portfolio, it's very common. And that's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, obviously. They booked about $1.8 billion in losses that they had to sell because they were losing deposits. Now, the big banks, they also have unrealized losses. B of A has about $131 billion. Even J.P. Morgan, one of the best-run large institutions in the world, has $40 billion. That's up 20% from that was the third quarter. That's up 20% from the second quarter. Why? Because interest rates keep going up. Now, obviously, the Fed has instituted the uh, BTFD, Bank Treasury Funding. Uh, I always forget the exact acronym. But it allows these banks to not deal with this. right? Kick the can down the road, hold them, and basically not mark these losses to market. That would 
really hamper their capital buffers and in some instances make them insolvent. Now, all of that's in theory. Theory of insolvency, but it's up to really the regulators to tell these companies whether they're solvent or not. Especially those large, too big to fail institutions. Now, Moody's estimates the U.S. banking industry is facing approximately $650 billion in unrealized losses. But I also think that's a whole lot of scaremongering because of the ability for these regulators to simply institute programs that will prevent a deflationary bust. That's what bank failures are because it crimps lending. It crimps the growth of what we call broad money. There's base money, there's broad money. And in an environment where debt is very high, especially in the government level, the Fed and the Treasury, frankly, they can't afford a deflationary bust. And I always watch this, and you should always watch this. What is the reaction of policymakers when there are when there is a potential for some disruption, they immediately step in, create some sort of facility, some short-term fix, paper over the issue, and pretend and extend. It's basically what the Fed's doing, saying, hey, anything that you need to sell, don't sell it. Just give it to us. We'll give you the notional value. And that's going to support the markets. It's going to support your balance sheet. And you can just wait until these bonds eventually get back to either profitability or maturity. And then you get your money back. And you pay us back. So this perspective is important because it highlights just another example of how Policymakers will continue to solve the problem. They have PTSD just like you do. Everybody has PTSD from 08. It's within all of our collective memories. It's not that long ago. Now, 15 years, you know, unless you're very young, you experienced 08. And it shapes your Thinking as an investor, guess what? It shapes the thinking as policymakers. Because the vast majority of them, right, they're not young whippersnappers. They're all in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And, you know, 08 was part of their experience, collective experience. And so why these numbers look big and they are to a degree. They aren't numbers that cannot be solved. And policymakers will continue to solve it, paper it over in the near term, long term. There could be larger issues, but near term, they will continue to paper it over. All right, let's keep things moving and pivot back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier on 888 99 chart. Hey, Invest Talk, I had a question for my parents. 
they are approaching retirement. And I wanted to get your guys' take on the best time to take Social Security. Um, so at 65, it seems like they'd get 100% of their Social Security. And if they were to postpone it to around 70, they'd get 125%. I believe they got some insight from one of their financial friends that it makes the most sense to you know, collect Social Security immediately and start investing it, and it has that room for growth. But, I mean, I feel like my thought process with this might make more sense for them since I think that they would be able to make it until 70 and then be able to collect the maximum benefit then and get that guaranteed income increase versus there's a chance that the you know market could crash if they were to collect Social Security early and invest it. It just seems like you know if you started early enough and were prepared and you wanted to slowly decrease your risk over time, it would make the most sense to, to wait until 70. And then also if you could touch on you know income you know, high versus low and how that uh, impacts the Social Security amount that you collect because some calculators online almost make it seem like, you know, whether you make a million or, you know, 50,000, you know, there's there's not a significant change in, in the amount that you would collect if you were to take it at 65 versus 70. And so just to get, you know, another viewpoint on it, I just want to give them good advice because they're going to have to make this decision soon. So I appreciate you guys' help as always and all that's on the show. Bye. Great question. And this is how I, I, I talk to my clients about this because everyone's situation is different. So you have to come at it with different principles, but not dogma. Dogma in this world, investing in uh, pl- financial planning is never good. You always want to be flexible based on each person's situation. So the first thing is health. Right. If somebody is not in great health, probably not going to make it past 80, 85. Right. Taking that early probably makes more sense. Okay. But if uh, all things being equal, if you're in relatively good health, you think you're going to live, you know, maybe probably into your 90s, then waiting longer typically makes sense. Now, that also depends on if you can wait longer. Some people have not saved well enough. And do not have the assets to live on until they get to their full retirement age or till 70, right? They need that income and they're unable to work. And then they're just going to have to adjust their lifestyle. Okay. But let's say you have good health. Let's say you have a decent amount of assets that you can pull income from. Maybe even a little bit of principal, that's fine, right? I'm not saying you have to, it has to be 100% income. It could be a little bit of principal as well, but enough to live on for a little while and get that guaranteed. And that's what's important here is the guaranteed increase in income that you get with waiting all the way till full retirement age and that 8% increase every year once you do uh, between the full retirement age and age 70. And so I, Typically, like telling my clients, at the bare minimum, you want to try to push the best you can to get that full retirement age. I know you said 65. Typically, the full retirement age is closer to 67 now. But I would say, if you can, go to 70. Now, what you might be, your parents might be seeing is that it's probably against the interest of, your, of their financial advisor that they wait. Right, because what are they going to do? They're going to pull out some money from those accounts to live off for a little while, for a few years, maybe five years, until they hit seventy. 
or full retirement age and then start taking their Social Security. At that point, maybe they drain their retirement accounts less. So there's a little conflict of interest you want to make sure that they're avoiding. And I worry a bit that their uh, advisor is saying that unless, once again, there's other two first situations or, or instances are uh, are at play here, right? They're <clears throat> they're not in good health, or they just don't have the assets. And so, you know, for us, we have to act act in the best interest of our clients. So, the best interest for most of our clients is take their nest egg that we're typically managing and draw from it for a little while, and get to that as much as you can from Social Security. Why is it even important today? Even more important today because of COLA. Social Security is typically one of the only guaranteed inflation-adjusted incomes for most people. And when you can, the, the higher you can get that base, the more each COLA adjustment will give them each year, right? If you wait, if you get $2,000 today or $3,000 in three years from Social Security, when whatever COLA uh, growth you, they're going to get from that, it's going to be off of 3000 instead of 2000 That percentage is going to be much higher. So it's even more important in an inflationary environment to continue to try to get as much as you can uh, from your, uh, your Social Security. So I hope that helps. There's a lot to think about, uh, but that's the way I approach it. All right, we're going to a break, so give me a call now at 888-99-CHART. Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy and discipline. And along the way, you're sure to have finance and investment questions. So Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are always ready to take your calls. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hello, KVP Financial. This is uh, Yannick Sano from uh, Denmark. Um, I have a question about a stock or rather a sector, perhaps. It's the cigar sector. I love cigars myself. And, you know, uh, they say it's good to invest in something that you can understand. Anyways, I'm having hard times finding any cigar stocks. But there is one only listed in Denmark, though. Ticker symbol STG. Now, if you have the means, I know you have a lot of info. Uh, I would sure like a comment about this, as I already own this on my uh, retirement account. Otherwise, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts about the cigar sector. It seems to me to be more interesting, persuading than, say, the cigarette industry, which you often cover. Thank you very much. Uh, this is Yannick from Denmark. Bye. All right, Yannick. Thanks for calling. I, I hope to visit Denmark one day. But the Scandinavian Tobacco Group is you're right it is mainly focused on cigars pipe tobacco and accessories both in north america europe and australia and it's not a large business 1.3 billion dollar market cap and it is cheap though it's pulled back from the highs in early 2022 of around $22 to fifteen dollars and fifty eight cents Current dividend yield is up around nearly 8%. Now, they do have a decent amount of debt on their balance sheet, but it is a company that has pretty consistent cash flows, pretty high cash flows, to be honest. And I like it. Times interest earned is 14 times, so they're earning plenty enough to 
pay their interest. And their operating margins are good, about 21%. So I, I'm i perfectly fine with this business. Uh, like you said, it's fairly recession-resistant. It's not an area that most – they're going to get a lot of competitors, right? It's not fast-growing, but it's a cash cow. So I'm going to give this one a thumbs up. Thanks for calling. All right. Lastly, let's talk about this very unique moment in market history. And that is, that was last Wednesday. And we had the Fed meeting, but the quarterly funding, refunding announcement was more important. Think about that. Everyone follows the Fed, what they do, what they say. But for the first time, it was all about the Treasury. And what their plans for bond issuance was going forward in the midst of a fiscal deficit that's going to clock in at about 6% of GDP with unemployment rate below 4%. And this is all about, are they going to issue more longer dated treasuries or short dated T-bills? And in some ways, they split the difference meaning they didn't increase their amount of longer dated securities. In fact, I think they dropped their, they kept 20 years the same, but they dropped their 30 and 10 years by about a billion each per month. Uh, And they increased their shorter dated, twos, fives, sevens. So not short, short, but on the shorter end, right? We'll call the belly of the curve. And this just goes to show you how, much of a problem our debt situation is becoming. And nobody is talking about it much. But the market reacted far more on that news early in the morning on Wednesday than it did after the Fed announcement. And they also talked about how they're willing to deviate from their typical 15 to 20% of total treasuries outstanding uh, as T-bills, meaning, hey, we're going to keep about 15 to 20% of our debt within this one-year time period of maturity. And what they said was that the committee supports meaningful deviation from that range, meaning it's at 22% now, so it's already above that range a little bit, and they're willing to go push that even higher if what I'm seeing is more market disruption on the long end of the curve, which is what you saw in late summer. And so it's pretty clear that now, as I said earlier, when the problems arise, policymakers will make adjustments to keep a problem from getting worse. Just say that. And another indicator that you have to follow, and these trends are not changing. All right, that about does it. Thank you all for tuning in. This will do it for today's edition of Invest Talk. I appreciate you all tuning in. And a reminder that the contents of this video are for uh, are, are a reminder that you can subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, and be sure to rate and review. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, It's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. 
Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights.